I have a six-year-old that's really into learning, learning books, learning apps, learning shows, but I'm really grateful to have found a learning podcast for her. From the creators of the hit kid podcast, Who Smarted, and Netflix's Brainchild, comes the adventurous world of mysteries about true histories, affectionately known as math. Every episode follows Max and Molly, who have just been recruited to a secret order of problem solvers. On an adventure through time, packed with puzzles, hidden equations, history, and laughs, making learning cool. My kid really appreciates these. They're only 15 minutes long, and she can stay engaged. She likes the characters. It's perfect for ages six and up. New episodes drop every Thursday, each stacked with so much laughter that your kids won't even realize how much they're learning. So tune in to Mysteries About True Histories with your kids. You can follow and listen on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your pods. Hello, you sentient ball of stardust. This is Struggle Care, the podcast about self-care by a host that hates the term self-care. And we're going to get into that today. I have a guest today named Amanda Dodson. She is a therapist and a professional organizer. And you know me, I love that combination. Hi, Amanda. Hi, Casey. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So, Amanda, the reason I wanted to have you on is because I love your take on things as a person who basically talks about low energy care of self. So will you sort of orient our readers as to why that sort of became a place for you and what your background is? Yeah. So I started my career as a community social worker. So I did in-home therapy for families who had cases open with child protective services, basically. And a lot of those cases were for what they called condition of the home. So our job would be to go in. And I mean, purportedly, our job was to help them get the house cleaned up. But really, what it was, was figuring out what had gotten in the way of them being able to care for their home, and sometimes care for their children and themselves. And often it was physical disability. It was significant mental illness, or simply not having been raised with that set of skills and getting to adulthood and just not being sure quite what to do. And so I really found I had a passion for just really getting in there and kind of getting my hands dirty to get homes the way people wanted them to be with the sort of like mental health spin on it. And I moved into like different areas of practice after that. But then during COVID, I myself developed a chronic illness that really impacted my ability to do all of the like cleaning and organizing that I loved, loved to do. So it was necessary for me to really adjust my habits and my expectations about how to keep up with caring for myself, caring for the people I take care of also, because I am also a caretaker for other people who are chronically ill and keeping up with just like the daily work of running a home, which is a lot when you've got other stuff going on. So what would you say was the hardest like shift mentally to make when you found yourself with a smaller capacity of energy than you were used to? I think the hardest thing to accept for me was just that it was simply not possible for me to do it all in the way that I was used to being able to do. Like in the past, and lots of people who have like become disabled 
know this journey, but in the past, you're used to having a pretty much infinite supply of energy, even if it is hard to reach sometimes. <laughs> and it really took me a while to accept, like, I just cannot do that anymore. And so I can't count on being able to like wake up on a Saturday morning and clean my whole house for the day, for the week. I have to be planful about how I ration my energy. And even in things like taking care of myself, getting myself showered, hair washed, dressed every single day, like that became something I had to spend my energy on rather than something that was just a given that I would be able to do. It's interesting. You know, I'm sure a lot of our listeners are familiar with spoon theory, but probably not everybody is, which is this idea that, well, here, I'll let you explain it. Go ahead. Well, yeah, yeah. Spoon theory. So the idea is that when you're able-bodied, able-minded, you have a pretty much endless supply of these little spoonfuls of energy. Like if you imagine your physical and mental energy as a big jar, you can just like spoon out of it and the spoons never stop coming. But when you have depression or you have chronic pain or something interfering, your spoons are finite. <laughs> and sometimes they're extremely finite, like you only have a couple a day. So you have to be really careful about how you spoon out your energy. Well, and it's a really helpful metaphor for understanding like just the idea of having a limited capacity, which I find is applicable to most people. So I don't have a chronic illness, but what I found was when I went from having one kid to having two kids and then going through the pandemic and then like coming under some stress, all of a sudden I was experiencing this thing where I would wake up and I would have these things I needed to get done that day. And then like suddenly at 3 p.m., I would just hit a wall. And it was like I could feel my body and my mind being like powering down. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and I'd be like, oh, my. And I could not get myself to do anything else. I'd have brain fog. I'd have fatigue. And it was really frustrating. And especially, you know, then it's but it's like, oh, God, I have all these other things, including like getting my kids into bed and feeding myself and like this thing that has to happen tomorrow. And so I think like whether it is chronic illness or you mentioned mental illness or just burnout or stress, or I know a lot of parents, or maybe you got a new dog. I mean, literally whatever it is, we go through this thing where we're going, oh my God, why don't I have the limitless energy that I had before? And I think that a lot of people are, I mean, even able-bodied people have to make choices. Like maybe they don't have the energy for everything, but typically they have enough energy to cover all of the necessities. And they're really only making cuts when it comes to the extra. So it's like, I'm too tired to go to the beach and do a three-mile run today, so I guess I'll have to pick one, right? But it's like very different when that energy runs out at, okay, um, I guess I have to decide whether I'm going to shower today or I'm going to clean my house. Yes, yes. Or whether I'm going to shower or be able to prepare myself a dinner, right? Like, but isn't it interesting what I heard you say, and I totally identify with this, like, when you hit that wall and kind of ran out of spoons, our emotional reaction is to feel frustrated and angry. And sometimes, and often like angry at ourselves, like, why am I so tired right now? Like, uh, what am I doing wrong? Did I not drink enough water? Did I not get enough sleep? Like, why do I feel this way? It must be something that I've done. And I just have found that to be so counterproductive, even though it's our regular 
response <laughs> because it only tires us out more to be angry and frustrated with ourselves for feeling tired. Yeah, it was a huge deal for me to be like, okay, especially in my case, like I didn't know why I was running out of energy. I didn't know if it was the trauma from the pandemic, if I had something wrong with my hormones, if I was sick, if I was depressed, like what it was. And I was kind of frustrated that my doctors kept being like, I mean, you might just be traumatized. So it's like, no, it must be something fixable. <laughs> but like getting to the point where I hit that wall and instead of launching into those questions or those criticisms, just being like, okay, this is where it ends for me today. Like it's, I think, a hard transition to be okay with those stopping points and a, a kind of a non judgmental awareness. Totally. And like radical acceptance is the name of the game because it's natural for us to go into that like question spiral of why we're tired or why we're out of juice. But like that only just creates more suffering and more fatigue. And it's a lot more effective, I've found, to just be like, well, that's it for today. And that's all Amanda has to spend. <laughs> so we got to redirect into something else. Well, what I love about your channel on TikTok and about the kind of services that you offer is that coming into it from a place of knowing what it's like to have to ration energy and even mental and physical energy kind of allows you to think outside the box, right? And I think that a lot of resources and services out there about home care, about self-care, they kind of come from an able-bodied perspective, right? So it's more about, you know, putting all of the different glass jars into the pantry or having your rainbow-colored bookcase and meal prepping big, huge meals that you know you're going to have the time and energy to plan on Sundays and those sort of things. And I have an example of one that I love that I've always loved. I'm going to play. Hey, you. Hey, you. If you're too hungry and dysregulated to figure out what you want to eat so you just eat nothing, eat a little snack first. Wait for a minute, then figure out what you want to make yourself for a meal. Snack before a meal is allowed. Do it. Okay, love you. I love this because it's those types of little tips that are counterintuitive in a lot of ways. Like they're so simple when you hear them and it reveals to us all of these like rules about caring for ourselves that we're like kind of following. Like who would have thought I felt like I wasn't allowed to eat a snack before deciding on a larger meal? Yes, but we carry those rules with us. You'd be shocked how many comments from people were like, why did I never think that this was okay? And I think it's, I've like worked in eating disorder recovery too professionally, so like the food thing has a special place in my heart. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I think we carry a lot of rules that come from just like gender expectations and role expectations about like how we're supposed to clean our home, live in our home, eat in our home. And they are pretty aimed towards someone who's already doing quite well at all of those things. So the advice doesn't end up being that helpful. So how many people do you work with on like a coaching basis that come to you because they've tried some other like self-care organization method and it was a method made for someone who is firing on all able-bodied, able-minded, totally great support system cylinders? I mean, like all of them, <laughs> all of them, every single one. Yeah, I was just talking to one of my coaching clients the other day, and they were saying like, yeah, I looked up methods for 
like a system for cleaning my house. And it was like day two, remove everything from your cabinets and wipe them out. <laughs> day three, clean all the baseboards. And they were like, this is intermediate. I need beginner. <laughs> like I'm nowhere near keeping up this level of cleanliness. I need something so much more simple. And really what people need is like the kind of home care training that some of us receive as kids on how to keep up with homes, but a lot of people just don't for whatever reason. So I want to, in just a minute, I want to get into something that you said where you talked about how a lot of the guilt or shame we feel or the messages about like what rules we're allowed to break come from these different cultural expectations. I want to get into that, but I'm going to pause for a second and then we will be right back. I've never met a free trial that I didn't like. The problem is, is that I often forget to get out of them before they start charging me. But I don't have that problem since I started using Rocket Money. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills so that you can grow your savings. I love how the dashboard shows me this month's spending compared to last month, and I can clearly see my spending habits. Plus, they'll help me create a custom budget and keep my spending on track. Rocket Money will even try to negotiate lower bills for you, up to 20%. All you have to do is submit a picture of your bill, and Rocket Money takes care of the rest. They'll even deal with customer service for you. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of 500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. So stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com struggle. That's rocketmoney.com struggle rocketmoney.com slash struggle. Are you frustrated by buying your kids clothes and having them grow out of them within a week? Do they itch, pinch, and they just aren't comfortable? Well, then you need to check out Posh Peanut. Made from this amazing bamboo material, the clothes are legitimately so soft and they stretch with your kids as they grow. They are four times stretchier than cotton. Made to last, loved by parents, and approved by kids. Posh Peanut makes thoughtfully crafted, beautiful and stylish clothing for kids and families designed in-house from beautiful florals to all of your favorite brands, such as Hot Wheels, Disney, Hello Kitty, and Barbie. Their pieces are made with that ridiculously soft fabric, and it even stays soft, wash after wash after wash. Right now, Posh Peanut is offering our listeners 20% off your first order with promo code STRUGGLE. Go to poshpeanut.com slash struggle and use promo code STRUGGLE for 20% off your first order. That's poshpeanut.com slash STRUGGLE, promo code STRUGGLE. Okay, we are back with Amanda Dodson, who is a counselor and a professional organizer. She runs her company called Nesting Your Life. Mm-hmm. Nice. You could tell I was worried that I'd forgotten it. Um, (laughs) (laughs) So we're talking about how when you are, when you go through something and you find yourself with a much more limited capacity than you previously had and sort of almost, would you say there's almost like a, like phases of grief that you go through of like coming to terms with being able to be non-judgmental about the fact that you have to now budget things differently? Yes, totally. And I really experienced this myself and I've seen other people go through it where it's almost like you have to mourn the death of your able-bodied self that like they might not be coming back. You're going to have a different kind of life now. And I think that comes with the whole process of accepting like a chronic problem or a chronic disability or even just like a chronic life challenge. Like from now on, you're going to have to be taking care of your ill parent. Or from now on, your child has 
a special need that you never expected to parent, but now you gotta, right? Like we all have these things come up in our lives that are unexpected that we never planned for. <laughs> it's almost like chronic lack of support also is yes a huge one, right? Like there are people out there that didn't plan to be single parents. Exactly. They didn't plan for their job to transfer them away from their family. They didn't plan to suddenly lose their job and now have to spend so much more time making the amount of support that they used to have. And now they're exhausted and limited in time and energy. Yes. And all the narratives we have for how to deal with that are very, I mean, you're uh, from Texas like I am. So we were steeped in the like, just sort of pull yourself up by your bootstraps, like just, you know, get it together and then everything will be okay and you'll be able to handle all of it. And I think people feel quite full of despair when that doesn't work because the opposite is true. Like in those times of your life, when you're accepting that you have to ration your energy, that's when you need the most support. And that's when you need to be bringing in more people that you didn't expect to have to help you out, but now they do. And we were sort of talking briefly about the idea that most like home and self-care advice is sort of almost geared towards people that have able-bodied and support systems. I'm curious your thoughts on why that is, because if you think about it, like people who need quote unquote self-help advice are people that need help, right? And so, and yet most of the sort of self-help advice out there is really only geared towards a specific like demographic of people that don't actually need too much help. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and I think it's because those are the people that can afford to buy the books. <laughs> those are the people that have the disposable income for those sorts of things. And that's why, I mean, I love your book and I love writing for the target audience of people that it's like, maybe you're not going to be able to read this whole book. Maybe you're just going to be able to skim it. Maybe you're going to be able to get some snippets from the internet, right? Like, I don't know why self-help advice is so written towards basically well people who just want to like be a little bit better. But I think it's just because people like they forget they exist until they're one of them or they're taking care of one of them. Yeah, the world doesn't really like to pretend like disabled people exist in their full rights as autonomous human beings that are experiencing life still. Yes. And I mean, I think you brought up a great point, which is that the majority of self-help products and advice is living in a capitalistic market where they want people to purchase that product. And so you need to both promise to fix somebody's all their problems and you need to be aiming and marketing in a way that people that have expendable income want to be marketed to, right? They want to believe that all they have to do is just believe in themselves and manifest. And then, you know, this will all be fit, like they'll be better. They'll suddenly have more energy. They'll get everything done. Everything will look nice. That's unfortunate, but it's so true. And I, but I think it's helpful to know that when we're hearing messages like motivational speakers and people selling books and things like that, at the end of the day, they're trying to get people to purchase from them. And you have to market in that way. Yeah. Like it's a product. And yeah. <laughs> and But the products are sometimes packaged so seductively. Like the idea that if you could just do this one thing, follow this one cleaning system or make this one little thinking change in your life. And then like, 
everything would be great and nothing would be difficult or confusing ever again. Like, what a dangerously seductive idea. But that's not actually how life works. It's really more complex than that. And you can do all the right things and still have something bad happen to have everything thrown off the rails. So when you work with someone who is trying to, let's say, create a more functional home or work some self-care. I love how many tips you have about eating, because if you go and look for like tips on eating well, it's mostly like diet advice. Oh, it is. Yeah. Yeah. But my experience is like, there's a lot of people who are just like, no, how do I eat like anything? Yeah. It's one of the first questions that I ask people, even when they come to me for just like cleaning or organization, like what's your eating routine like? Because I find especially neurodivergent people, I think because just their internal clocks run a little bit differently. Like they tend to eat nothing all morning, some of the afternoon until like three o'clock, they realize they're like starving. And that's when their brain tells them you're hungry. But by that time, they've lost all executive functioning skills to be able to prepare a meal. And usually all They've lost all connection with their like hunger fullness cues. So it's just sort of like, I need to get something in my body right now. And then the meal doesn't end up even being that enjoyable because it's eaten sort of frantically. And then they don't get hungry again until like late, late at night when ideally it would be time to like wind down a little bit and start thinking about going to sleep. And if you can run your life on that schedule, am I calling you out right now, Casey? Oh my God, you're literally <laughs> describing my exact day. Like, oh my gosh, I feel exposed. <laughs> and that's the reaction that people typically have. It's like, how did you know? <laughs> I mean, the more I talk to people, the more I'm convinced I've never had a unique experience. Okay, so if I come to, let's, let's go with that. Like, let's say I come to you and I'm like, hey, and you describe that and I go, oh my God, that's me. And I'm like, oh, what do I want to organize my house? Why is it though that you ask that first and we're going to start there? Because they're never going to have the executive functioning to organize their house if they're starving. So what are some things that you would suggest to me if I were to say like, yes, that's my eating pattern and I'm going offline at 3 p.m. and I feel this paralysis and I'm panic eating, but I, I don't know what to make myself. Like, where do we start with some tips for that? Well, I mean, usually I try to target lunch because breakfast is really hard for people. So I'll have people set an alarm for lunch and we'll make them a list of things to like, ideally that day when I meet with them, go to the store and buy things that they know they like that are really quick. They can just grab out of the fridge for a lunch. Then we start to target breakfast. And it's like, when you get up in the morning, a lot of people don't feel like eating, but it's like, what's the least like horrifying thing you can think of nourishing yourself with in the morning. Can you get through a like Luna bar, right? Could you tolerate like a piece of toast with some peanut butter on it or something like that, right? And most people find once they start eating more regularly, they're more in touch with their hunger fullness cues. And so they remember to eat more frequently because they're starting to notice when they're actually hungry. So yeah, alarms, having snacks in every room of the house is sometimes something that's worked for some people, like just having them visible. That has been huge for me. I started keeping peanut butter crackers on my third floor. So my office is on the third floor of our house. And I found myself like even when I was recognizing I was hungry, not wanting to go down to the first floor. Yeah. And I spent several days being like, but you have to, Casey, make yourself. You have to. It's important. Before I was like, or just put some peanut butter crackers on the third floor. Like maybe this is a battle for another day. Yes. Yes. Because way better peanut butter crackers than like 
nothing and internal turmoil. Right. Yeah. And so do clients push back on you when you say get something you can just grab? Because that probably means things that are prepackaged, things that are wrapped in plastic. Do you ever have people it's like, oh, God, no, the environment, like I can't do it. Yeah, I do. I do. I get the environment and I get the the food rules around like, but that's processed food and I should be eating something with a vegetable. And I'm like, you're not eating anything, baby. Like, <laughs> <laughs> like, come on, <laughs> don't be a hero. <laughs> I loved the one you did where you were like acting on a skit and you said, oh, I've really got to get all of this homework done. But, you know, I'm hungry and I'm thirsty and I'm starving, but I've got to get this homework done. And you were like, okay, well, why do you need to get the homework done? They're like, so I can get a good job. And why do you need a good job? So that I can live a fulfilling life. Okay, like, is this fulfilling? Are you feeling fulfilled? And they're, you're like, no, I'm not. I'm hungry. And they're like, okay, you have to eat if you want to do these other things. Like not eating is not in alignment with your long-term goals. <laughs> it is not. <laughs> I love that. Okay, so that's pretty good. So let's say that I get the eating down. I'm starting to eat regular meals and I've learned to maybe eat a snack before I make a meal, get some prepackaged things. If I'm feeling like my house isn't functional, where is a place that you like to start with people, if, especially if they're going, the amount of things that needs to be done for my home to be functional? So because a lot of my wording is about just focus on function, just focus on function, like don't worry about it being perfect, focus on function. And that's really helpful for a huge demographic that listens to me and listens to my content, sets them free. But a lot of times what happens is people going, okay, but like my capacity is such that like, I don't even have the energy to get it functional. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Where do I go from there? Yeah, yeah. So the first question I usually ask at that point is what is the most distressing area of your home that's always in your way? It's always causing a problem for you. When you look at it, you're filled with despair. Like, what is that? For every person, it's different. Sometimes it's like, oh, my bathroom. Or for a lot of people, it's the sink with the dishes. And so then we start to, but then they'll say, but it's so overwhelming. I can't even think of where to start. So we'll say, okay, what would be the very, very first step to doing the dishes? And they'll start to go like, well, you know, they'll go like six steps in and I'm like, no, 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 back it up. <laughs> you just open, maybe open the dishwasher and see if there's clean dishes in there. Maybe we just empty the sink so we can work in it, right? And like, I find that once people get that first step going, it's like it breaks the avoidance seal that their brain has imposed and they can actually engage in the task without feeling overwhelmed. I found that I have to put on an apron. Oh, that's like my game changer. If I put on an apron and put on music, then I'm like, okay, maybe I can open the dishwasher. Now I am cleaning person. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. And like a lot of people through talking with them, we find that they have some sort of like sensory aversion to the task that that is causing a problem with them. We need to put an accommodation in place to help it be less distressing. So sometimes we problem solve that. And sometimes they just need permission to start small. So I'll ask them like, how long do you think you could clean your house for today? And they'll say like an hour. And so I'll say like, okay, set a timer for seven minutes. 
and just clean. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for saying that. I was really hoping that you were going to say that because the amount of times that I have gone to like a professional, whether it's a dietitian or a therapist or whatever, and been like, I mean, I think I could do like, you know, 30 minutes a day. And they'll be like, excellent. We're going to start with three. Yes. (laughs) Like I always overestimate what I think I can commit to. And then I'm too overwhelmed to do it. So I'm so glad to hear that that's what you do with people. (laughs) Yes. But it's so true because we need the experience of being successful to feel motivated to do it again. Like I can't be like shooting for 30 minutes multiple days and not making it and like want to keep doing that. Totally. Totally. Yeah. And that trick works for a lot of things. Like for me, I like my cognitive energy, like hits a wall at some point in the day and I just don't have any more like focus anymore. So one way I ration that if I need to like write an article, get work done, I'll be like, okay, I can't say sit down and write an article, but I can say sit down and I'm going to set a timer for three minutes and I'll write during those three minutes. (laughs) And like what I find and what a lot of people find is like just once they do that three minutes, they're like, wow, I did it. Success. And usually they want to keep going. I love that. Okay, we're going to take a quick break here. And when we come back, I want to ask you more about the sensory issues. Hey, if you enjoyed my episode on IEPs and you want to listen to more podcast episodes about IEPs, I want to tell you about another podcast you should check out. It's called Understood Explains. This season, the show is hosted by teacher and special education expert Juliana Ortube, and it's all about how to navigate individual education plans, also known as IEPs. You might have heard me talk about IEPs on my episode, and this latest season of Understood Explains covers topics like how to tell if your child needs an IEP, and it busts common myths about special education. I checked out these episodes, and I think that they are a great place for you to go after listening to mine. They go into a little more detail and answer a little more in depth about what an IEP is and whether your child needs one. So listen to Understood Explains by searching for Understood Explains in your podcast app. That's Understood Explains. Remember in 2018 when Border Patrol separated thousands of refugee kids from their parents, deported those parents back to their home countries while keeping the kids in the United States? Well, believe it or not, six years later, there are hundreds of families who have still not been reunited. Although we as a community may feel hopeless at times, I recently learned about an organization called Al Otro Lado, which works to reunify families. They provide holistic legal and humanitarian support to refugees, deportees, and other migrants in the U.S. and Tijuana through a multidisciplinary, client-centered, harm-reduction-based practice. Since 2018, they've reunified over 100 refugee families ripped apart by Trump's zero-tolerance policy. Once reunited, Al Otro Lado helps each family find legal representation, housing, and the counseling that they need in order to heal and get on their feet. You can find the link to donate to El Ultra Lotto in the description of this episode or go to gum.fm slash charity and donate today. You can also consider volunteering with the organization, which offers opportunities that are both in-person and virtual. The best way to get involved is by filling out an application on their website, alotrolado.org slash volunteer. That's A-L-O-T-R-O-L-A-D-O. Okay, we're back. And I want to dive into this idea of people having sensory barriers because I feel like You know, when I am struggling to get something done in my home or take care of myself, it's often like the first thought is like, oh, I'm such a piece of junk. Like, I just have to try harder. I have to do that. And when we give people permission to believe that their struggle with a care task is morally neutral, that like it doesn't mean anything about them and that their barriers are legitimate, 
I have found that that cracks open all of this problem solving. Like, I can't tell you the amount of people who, when I talk about, like, brushing teeth, and I'll say, like, some people don't, like, they're avoiding brushing their teeth, and and I ask, like, why? And they're like, well, what do you mean? And I'm like, well, why? But, like, think about, like, really think about, like, what it is that, and people really haven't given themselves permission to think about what they hate about it so much because they think that their avoidance of it is such a character failing. Mm -hmm. So tell me a little bit about how you walk through sensory issues and, like, what does that mean? What does that entail? What are some of the most common ones you've seen? Yeah, well, I mean, teeth brushing is a huge one because for some people, the toothbrush and the taste of the toothpaste is a sensory nightmare. I've worked in like therapeutic schools with kids that are on the autism spectrum. And I, one school that I worked at in Boston, they had a whole OT department, just like they had a therapy department. They had an entire gym in a department of OTs. And I'm like, I love OT. Like I should have gone to school to be an OT. I'm into it. <laughs> but I was so inspired by all the strategies that they had. And I started to realize how many sensory issues I had in my own life that I had just sort of like shoved down <laughs> in a little ball <laughs> because they seemed weird. Or like, as my parents would say, like, you're a funny girl. <laughs> like, <laughs> just the nicest way to say, like, that's really strange. Um, but I like... For myself, I started noticing like I was avoiding washing my Tupperware. At times, I would even just throw it away because old food gave me like a full body, just ick nausea reaction. Like I couldn't think about touching it. I couldn't think about even looking at it, smelling it. And so actually at work, a dietician saw me throw it away and she was like, okay, I'm going to work with you on this, even though you're my coworker. She was like, you're going to open it, put it in the sink, run hot water in it and soap so that you can't see all the food right away. And we're just going to get like all the bad stuff down the drain and you're going to put gloves on. Right. And so like giving myself permission to think about this, not as just like a funny quirk that I had, but as like a genuine functional issue was really illuminating. And so I mean, the most common ones I hear are like touching old wet food and people often need like gloves, a drop of like something that smells good under the nose to be able to smell something different. Another one people have is like they just hate the feeling of wet hands. So gloves also work with that, but also aprons like sweatbands that go on their wrists. So the water can't run down the wrist. That helps with face washing too, because a lot of people avoid washing their faces because of the drips. A lot of people have, and I have this one, like if there's like crunchy things underfoot, when I'm walking around the house barefoot, it like makes me want to implode. <laughs> and so I have lots of nice socks and I asked and asked my friends and family and eventually they gifted me with one of those little robot vacuums which has massively <laughs> improved my quality of life because I'm not yes. just like inundated with horrible sensory input all the time so I'm such an apron girl like I found that the point of like I knew that the point of an apron was like to keep things off of your like clothes but I realized that one of the reasons why I would avoid doing dishes is because when water gets on the sink and I lean up against it, I have like a real thing with wet clothes in any capacity. And so I was like, oh, that's why people wear aprons. <laughs> I mean, to me, an apron was such a 1950s thing. Yeah. So when I recognize like the functionality of not only does it like get me in the headspace, but like when I have gloves on, when I have an apron on, when I have music on, like 
when I'm addressing my sensory environment, it's amazing to me how much of a task feels intolerable because of the sensory components. And when I address that, all of a sudden the motivational blocks are a little bit less because, oh, it's not as intolerable. And then if you just combine that with a few things, like you said, with like, let me just set a timer for seven minutes. Mm -hmm. And we can kind of get this like wrap around holistic approach to it. Yes. And it's huge. It's a huge deal. Oh, totally. And the like motivation pairing of like music or podcast or audiobook with the chore is a real game changer for a lot of people. Also, because a lot of people, especially with dishes, the sound of like the dishes knocking together really, really bothers them. So, yeah, I mean, I think it's all about like figuring out your special formula <laughs> for like what makes a chore tolerable. Because once it's tolerable, it's most people find they're even like happy to be able to do it. And it's such a message of compassion to talk about that with people, because I think a lot of us got this message that if you don't like something, if it's uncomfortable, if you're feeling a sense of like avoidance or even revulsion at doing something, that the only solution to that is just knock it off. Quit being so sensitive. Pick yourself up by the bootstraps. Big girls do hard things. And I believe that there is a time and place for believing, hey, this is uncomfortable, but I have to make myself do it anyways. But it's not dishes, right? Mm -hmm. Like it's okay to make a care task that you struggle with a little bit easier, right? With some accommodations. Like the things in my life that I've had to actually tell myself, I know it's uncomfortable, but you have to just do it. They're almost always emotional things, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. right? Like I need to say this hard thing to a friend. Mm -hmm. I need to, you know, be honest with someone. I need to tell my husband something that's embarrassing. I need to stand up for myself. Like things where it's like, this is going to be hard, but I just have to make myself do it because I have to be courageous. Like that to me is the place for, all right, suck it up, do it. Not, yeah. you know, laundry is miserable because like, it's okay. Like it's morally neutral to build in some accommodations around laundry so you don't hate it so much. Exactly. And like, I mean, I don't mean to get so existential about these things, but like dishes, laundry, cooking, these things are the work of living. Like we spend so much of our lives doing these things. And I hate for people to feel like it's just like something, some burdensome task that they have to do because, and like also, you know, caring for self and hygiene, right? Like I think people feel really filled with like emptiness when they think I have to spend my life doing all of these things that are such a burden and I really hate because we have to do them every day. And if you are burdened by these tasks every day, I mean, how does that make you feel about your life and life in general? And so if we can find a way to make these tasks not only tolerable, but rewarding and pleasant and like a feeling of success and investment in just the life you're living, I do think that it just makes life a lot more meaningful. Well, and it makes me think like for the majority of history, at least in the U.S. with our current country, the majority of domestic care tasks have been left to women. Mm -hmm. And so I think that there's like some real misogyny behind this idea that, you know, it's silly or it's superficial to spend time making care tasks more enjoyable or easier 
um, that you should just suck it up and do it. Like, just be an adult. Everyone has to do these things. And I always say, like, and sometimes people will say that to me where I'll talk about a hack that I use and they'll say, it would have taken you two seconds longer to just put your dish in the dishwasher, right? And it always makes me think about how, like, there are people that are paid, like, six-figure salaries, to find ways to shave two seconds off of production times and warehouses. Mm -hmm. Like you don't think Amazon's paying people like millions of dollars to shave seconds here, seconds there. I mean, we know they don't necessarily care about like worker experience, but when it, you know what I mean? Like making things more efficient, more doable, more productive. It's like our culture says it's okay to spend a lot of time and energy figuring out how to make business more productive, more efficient. But if you want to take that same type of creativity and dedication to your home, to your self-care, to your home care, figuring out how to create a home that serves you, all of a sudden it's, why would you do that? It's not that deep. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> when, like you said, like good bit of living is these care tasks. So it is that deep. It is that deep, but I think you're right. It's our own internalized misogyny and and society's misogyny that makes us see these things as frivolous and you know even like for a lot of history white women were able to like outsource these tasks to black indigenous and women of color so seeing and i even like experience this sometimes as someone who internally as someone who's like i went and like did all the loans to get this advanced degree and like worked really hard to get this therapy license and i've found myself like cleaning people's houses. And sometimes I feel a twinge of like, it's uncomfortable to tell people that I'm cleaning instead of practicing therapy because cleaning is like this not as good, like uh, occupation. When in reality, like a lot of times I'm making people stay better in the same way that I am as a therapist when I go and just clean up their houses for them. I think those forces are really sneaky. Plus, you know, like we were talking about the sensory issues people earlier and giving themselves permission. I know with a lot of men that I work with and men in my life who they had no permission to feel that they had an internal barrier to housework, either from executive functioning or never being taught. A lot of boys are never taught how to care for themselves or their homes. We just assume they'll like figure it out or someone else will do it for them. And I think that's at the point at which it's very seductive for men to kind of like float into the like casual misogyny of like, oh, my sister will just handle it or my mom will, or my wife will just handle it. And like, I see part of my work as like pulling men out of that to be like, no, let's figure out what's getting in the way of you actually doing these tasks so that you can also participate in the work of living in your home and not just feel like this is some silly thing that's just done for you. Like, you live there. And so you you should be a part of it. Well, and I think it comes down at the end of the day to that every person deserves to function and they deserve help with tasks, even if they seem simple, even if they seem like nobody else needs help with those tasks, because also they do. 
right? Like there's a reason why my platform got so big. There's a reason why people come to you and you continue to be able to sustain yourself with this line of work is because there are people that need help with how do I feed myself? How do I brush my teeth more regularly? How do I get a functional home that's a little more organized? And um, so I think what you do is really valuable work. And I really appreciate you coming on today. Thank you. Thank you can so you, much for thinking of me. Of course. Can you tell everybody where they can find you if they want to follow you? You can find me on TikTok at Nesting Your Life. And you can find my website at nestingyourlife.com. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you. Well, hey there, busy mama. Are you looking for ways to make your life easier, your home less chaotic, and at the same time, add more joy to your life? My name is Deanna Yates, and I'm the host of Wanna Be Clutter Free, a podcast all about letting go of the stuff we don't need in our lives so that we can focus on what truly matters. Don't worry, I'm not going to tell you to throw it all away or make you feel guilty about keeping something you love, no matter how many other people don't quite understand it. But I will give you practical and more importantly, actionable advice so that you can make progress right away. And you won't just hear it from me. There are amazing guests too. It's like having your bestie in your pocket, telling you it's okay to let go of the things that are not serving you and your family in a totally non-judgmental way. So join me over on the podcast where we can work on progress over perfection for those of us that want to be clutter-free.